Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that by Your Spirit we would see Jesus this morning. We ask that we would hear Jesus this morning. We ask that we would be loved, we would be moved to love and serve Jesus this morning. For it's in His name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> One of the more traumatic instances in my life came when I was about 12 years old, and it was about three miles in that direction. Um, my family and I had gone out in the boat one Saturday across the harbor to a beach right near Fort Sumter. And for as long as I can remember, I've always had this weird fascination with the weather. Uh, even as a young boy, I always had one eye in the sky. And on this particular Saturday, I began to see some clouds forming way down on the south horizon. And convinced of my exceptional 12-year-old meteorological expertise, I went and told my father confidently that a storm was coming. And he did, I guess, the only reasonable thing that one would do. He said, okay, I'll, I'll keep an eye on it, son. Well, as many of you know, here in the low country in the summer, storms can quickly come out of nowhere. And on that particular day, I happened to, to be right. In about 20 minutes, those clouds built up into a storm that surrounded us uh, and blocked our way back to the har across the harbor. So we had to go up in the dunes and lay down because there was no shelter, and we stayed for what felt like hours, and the storm just sat right over us. Finally, uh, the brunt of the storm seemed to move north, and we made a run for it. We pulled up the anchor, floored uh, the boat, and with all the wind and rain coming down, I'll never forget, we made it about 100 yards from the shore before lightning started popping all around the boat. It felt like it was right next to us, and it's the kind of lightning that makes your hair stand up on your back because you can almost feel the electricity. So we changed plans, went back to the island, got back in the dunes, and finally, almost by nightfall, we made it back across the harbor to safely. Needless to say, I've been frightened of lightning ever since. Uh, finding yourself in a storm all exposed can be a terrifying and miserable experience. And we have a similar story in our gospel passage this morning. The disciples find themselves miserable and terrified on the Sea of Galilee. And one of the unfortunate results of the popularity of this story is that people get hung up on Jesus walking on the water. In fact, walking on water has become a euphemism for doing the impossible. And I'll address that later on, but it's unfortunate that this familiarity with the story gets people to get tripped up uh, at the part of the story that's not even the most shocking. You see, it's not what Jesus does that's most shocking. It's actually what he says that should take our breath away. So I'm asking you this morning, if this story is familiar, to see it with fresh eyes. And here's the big idea that I want us to see this morning. When the storms of life come our way, what we need most is to understand who Jesus is. So let's turn and look at Mark chapter 6 and see three parts of this story. Misery, majesty, and remedy. So first, misery. Jesus has just dismissed the crowds after feeding the 5,000 with only five loaves and two fish. And he tells his disciples to make way to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And he goes off to the mountain by himself to pray that evening. And the first thing we see is the misery of the disciples. Several weeks back, Jeff preached on a passage earlier in Mark's Gospel where Jesus 
goes with his disciples across the Sea of Galilee into the land of the Gerasenes in order for Jesus to heal a man with a legion of demons. And as Jeff mentioned, it was a dubious thing to set sail across the Sea of Galilee at night. Evening squalls called sharkias, which come from the Arabic word east, were quite common. They'd blow in off the Golan Heights in the east. These storms would come in over the mountains quickly, and they could be quite severe. Even in the present day, they are known to cause serious damage to property, agriculture, sometimes even resulting in the loss of life. And so sometime between dusk the previous day and about four or five in the morning, uh, the disciples find themselves in one of these storms. And if you've never seen a first century fishing boat, uh, archaeologists believe they're about 25 feet long and eight feet wide, and their sides are, are barely waist high. They could sink on a good day. So imagine the terror that they were facing, the strong winds pushing against these sides of the, the boat, the, the massive waves coming in, crashing upon them, tossing them back and forth, flooding them and their boat. It was likely the condition of the disciples all night. It's no wonder that we are told that Jesus saw that they were making headway painfully. It would have been a miserable and terrifying experience. And the first thing I want us to see this morning is that the misery of the disciples in this storm is similar to the misery that we all inevitably face in this life. This life is filled with suffering and trials. Christianity actually has the courage to name that. It avoids the utopian image of life. It states that while God, yes, did create the world good, mankind rebelled against Him and incurred a curse that has now been brought upon the entire world. So now life is marked by hardship. Work has become toilsome. It produces thorns and thistles. It is evident that things should not, are not the way they should be. And no matter wealth or friends or education or lovers or human progress, no amount of these things can shield us from the storms of this life that will inevitably settle over each one of us. But my friends, lest we be naive about the Christian life, notice that it was actually in obedience to Jesus Christ that the disciples found themselves in the storm in the first place. The present misery that they are in was a res direct result of listening to what Jesus had told them. It's important for us to know that Christians are not immune to the storms of life. Peter, who was in this very boat, in this storm, would later write to Christians telling them, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when, not if, but when it comes upon you, as if something strange were happening to you. You see, Peter wants it, his followers, Christians, to get their minds right. They should actually think about suffering and trials not as some sort of strange intrusion into their lives, but they ought to expect them as Christians. After all, if we follow in the footsteps of our suffering Savior, we ought to expect to suffer as well. But nonetheless, Christians have something that will keep them afloat in any storm. So that leads us to my second point, majesty. Jesus, he sees the misery of his disciples. And that alone is a great comfort. He sees you in your suffering. And look what he does after he sees them. He, seeing them about the fourth watch of the night, that's sometime between 3 and 6 a.m., he comes to them walking on the sea. And this, as I said, is where most folks kind of get hung up. Ever since the Enlightenment, there have been many who dismiss this passage altogether or try to find some sort of rational explanation for Jesus walking on water. 
Some have said, well, maybe Jesus was walking on a sandbar in the middle of the Sea of Galilee. Others have said, maybe Jesus is not walking on the water at all, but near the water, along the shore, and it was really just an optical illusion. But you see, not only do these vain attempts not fit with what the actual text says, they miss the entire point of the passage. As I said earlier, the most shocking thing in this passage is not what Jesus does, it's what He says. And if we understand what He says, then what He does will actually make perfect sense. So what does Jesus say? The first thing He says is, take heart, it is I. Now, there is something going on here that there's more than meets the eye. In the original language, after He comes to them on the water, what He actually says is, take heart, I am. You can imagine just how confusing that would be if our English translations rendered it literally. But what he says is, ego I me, the Greek words for I am. And Jesus is doing something very intentional, so stay with me here. The entire scene of Jesus walking on the water is supercharged with allusions to Exodus, the Old Testament book of Exodus. If you recall the story of Moses, God reveals himself to Moses in a bush that is burning, but not consuming the bush. And when Moses asks uh, ask God's name, God tells him that his name is I Am. It's a fascinating name if you think about it, because it gets at so many different things about who God is. God never was, and he will never be, simply because he is. He is eternal and changeless. He cannot be other than who he is. And the name also tells us that he is self-existent. He's dependent on nothing or no one outside of himself. Think about that image of the burning bush. Just as the fire in the bush didn't need the bush in order to burn, so too God doesn't need anything or depend on anything else besides himself to exist. He is without beginning, without end, without cause, without derivation outside of himself. He is sovereign and supreme. He is who He is. He is the great I Am. And after God revealed Himself to Moses in the burning bush, He takes to the sea. He delivers His people from their misery in Egypt, coming at their time of need and then going with them across the sea. Elsewhere in the Old Testament, it is clear that God alone is the one who walks on the waters. So we have the name of God, I Am, and God helping His people through the sea. And, but the part of Exodus that really helps us understand our passage this morning is when Israel reaches Mount Sinai and Moses asks God for something outrageous. He asks to see God's glory. And what does God say? Do you remember? He says, you can't see my glory and live. Nonetheless, I will make all my goodness pass by you, and I will proclaim to you my name, Yahweh. I am. And this helps us understand this, this strange part at the end of verse 48 there. Did you catch it when it says, Jesus meant to pass by them? What are we to make of that? Jesus meant to pass by them? Wasn't he coming down off the mountain to help his disciples after seeing them? Well, this is where Moses asking to see God's glory helps us out. Mark isn't saying that Jesus was going to pass by them as if to keep on going and leave them in the storm struggling out on the sea. No. What he says is that Jesus was going to pass by his disciples in order to reveal himself, just as God revealed himself to Moses at Mount Sinai. And yet what these disciples see is far more incredible.
than what Moses even saw. Moses only saw the tail end, the hind parts of the glory of God. The disciples see the full glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Jesus walks to them on the water and he calls out, Take heart, I am. He is unequivocally identifying himself with the God of the Old Testament, claiming to be Yahweh, the great I am. Can you see how shocking that would have been? How shocking it still is. But you see, if Jesus is truly the eternal, the almighty, the sovereign and self-existent God who made the heavens and the earth and who upholds everything by the word of his power, even right now, then the problem of him walking on water simply fades away. You see, the very reason we have natural laws in the first place is that God has so chosen to govern this world in such a way that we can see patterns in his handiwork. But don't think for a moment that he couldn't decide to suspend his regular ways of governing the world and do something else. That is, after all, what a miracle is. You see, miracles are only a problem if you rule out the supernatural altogether. And if you rule out the supernatural altogether, I wish I had time to go into this, but if you rule it out, everything, if everything exists simply as a result of random atoms colliding together, then you will inevitably lose things like love and free will. If all you have is a closed naturalistic system, then everything is purely a result of an infinite series of causes and effects. And free will and love are simply an illusion. They're just the result of little neurons that were already predestined by nature to fire off in your brain. You see, believing in the supernatural, it takes a level of faith, yes, but so does believing in naturalism. It takes faith to believe purely in a naturalistic world, and it takes faith to believe that Jesus is the Son of God. He is, in fact, God who created the world and still upholds it. You see, my friends, this, this is the whole point Mark is getting at here. He's forcing you and me to ask ourselves, who is Jesus? And the answer Mark is convinced of is that Jesus is not a mere man. He claimed to be and did, in fact, the works of God. And that demands something of us. We can't simply like Jesus' ethical teaching and dismiss his outrageous claims about himself. He doesn't leave us that option. It, it has to be all or nothing with Jesus Christ. If he isn't who he claimed to be, then he's a deceiver, and you really shouldn't follow anything that he says. You can't, be, you can't like his superb ethical teachings and then reject what he has to say about himself. You have to either dismiss him altogether or bow down at his feet. The lesson of the loaves that the disciples should have known was just this, that Jesus is, in fact, God. And he has, therefore, all the resources of heaven and earth at his disposal. My friends, in the storms of life, the most important thing to see is who Jesus really is. The Lord, I am. The Lord of the stormy sea. And this leads me to the final part of the story. Remedy. Jesus is the great I am. And you notice it terrified the disciples. Look closely at what the passage actually says. It says, when they saw Jesus, that's when they were really terrified. Of course, as I said, they've already been scared in the storm, but it's the revelation of God's majestic glory in Jesus Christ. That's the primary reason they're scared. Why? Because beholding the glory of God, at least in the Old Testament, was a terrifying thing. Think, this, this is why it's completely shocking that Jesus not only says, I am, but then he follows up, I am, with, don't be afraid. 
It's shocking because in the Old Testament, God's holiness and His glory are all-consuming. Think back to the burning bush. Moses comes in contact with the great I Am. And what's the first thing that God says? He says, step back. Take your shoes off. Where you stand is holy ground. Or when Isaiah sees sees God, he cries out, Woe is me, I am lost and I am unclean, for I have seen the King, the Lord God Almighty. Every other instance in the Bible up to this point, when men encounter the great I Am, God says, get back, watch out. Now, How can Jesus identify Himself with that same God, I Am, and then say, don't fear? Well, we get a little hint at it in verse 51. Did you notice what Jesus does before He calms the storm? It might be a little throwaway line, but it's quite significant. He gets in the boat with them. He could have, of course, caused the wind and the waves to cease while he was out on them, but he chooses to get in the boat with them. And you might not think that's a big deal, but it tells us something about the heart of God. It gives us a glimpse at the ultimate remedy between God's glory and our misery. God in Jesus Christ becomes intimately aware of the circumstances of those he loves. He gets in their boat, and he feels what the storm is like. He becomes acquainted himself with hardship, misery, and suffering. He's not like the other gods of primitive cultures who distance themselves from suffering. He becomes acquainted with suffering out of the great love he has for his people. You see, at the center of the Christian faith is the miracle of the eternal Son of God taking on flesh and becoming a man. My friends, if Jesus is just a great teacher, if he's only your example and not God in the flesh, then at Christmas time, the, the little baby, all meek and mild, that Jesus may warm your heart, but he will never change your heart. Until you see Jesus as the, central, as the eternal divine creator and savior, your view of him will be too small. And it will never demand much of you, and Jesus will never melt your heart. God the Son laid aside his incredible pre-existent glory and became a humble servant. And he personally knows what it's like to go through one of life's storms. But getting in in the boat and familiarizing himself with his people's misery, even more we get a glimpse of the ultimate suffering that Jesus will endure. You see, at the cross, all of God's wrath against sin and all of mankind's sinfulness, they collide. And we get the ultimate storm. And in that storm, instead of walking on the waves, Jesus allows all the waves to roll over him, and he sinks down into the depths and dies on behalf of those he loves. See, the cross is where we see the love and the glory of God meet. The cross is the assurance that you can have confidence in any storm because Jesus, the Lord of the storm, died in the only storm that you and I should fear. My friends, if you are in one of life's storms right now, what you need most is to see Jesus rightly. He is the Lord of the stormy sea, and He's also the suffering Savior. He gave His life to remedy and to restore you to Himself. And He will come again to bring an end to all of life's storms. One of my favorite lines comes from the Heidelberg Catechism, and the first question of the Catechism asks this. It says, what is your only comfort in life and in death? My friends, if you see Jesus Christ rightly, then you can confidently answer that question the way it instructs us. It says, my only comfort in life and death is that I am not my own, 
but belong in body and in soul and life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with His precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He watches over me in such a way that not a hair of my head can fall without the will of my Father in heaven. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. He assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for Him. My friends, if those words are true for you, you won't merely be able to survive the storm, but you'll even be able to sing in the storm. And in fact, that's what I'm going to invite us to do right now. I can't think of a better way to respond to this message than to stand and sing that beautiful canticle that we just heard on page four, yet not I, through Christ, but through Christ in me. So would you join me as we sing on page four? <laughs> 